Welcome to the History of Networking at the Network Collective, where we drag out all the skeletons and all the old wiring closets. Tonight, we're talking to Yuval Bakker about the history of the white box movement and the backpack in particular. So grab a pile of cookies. I got mine. Your beverage of choice and join us as we meld with the finest minds in networking. Well, good evening, Yuval. I know it's evening there in San Jose or just after five or something like that. So that's cool. And uh, you look like you're in the office. Do you ever leave the office? That's my question. <laughs> I do sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> you have a life except the working. <laughs> Welcome to the world of engineering. So going way, way back in your dim, distant past and memory, <laughs> so talk, talk to us a little bit about the white box movement, where it came from, and what were people thinking when they started this whole thing of trying to do white box? I mean, aren't the vendors good enough? <laughs> yeah. So, so white box started as, as an initiative to come and show that we need to, dis, to come and show that we can disaggregate the software from the hardware. For a very long time, uh, we were preached by the OEMs that only they can build hardware and only their software is going to run on top of that hardware. And I was part of that uh, game, which actually said that for a very long time. Uh, there, there was a point where people came and said, you know what, your software is not good enough, your software is too expensive, or the solution together is not what I want to do because I'm only using 10 features out of the 300 features you're offering me. I want to write my own software. And to do that, you have been forced to actually figure out a way how to get a switch because the hardware itself came always bundled with the software. So at that point, especially it started as a movement within the large data center operators. Google started it at first, built the first switches, which were standalone switches with their own software on top of it. And, uh, but they were never opened it. They never actually labeled them as white boxes, never enabled them to actually go to the industry. The first very major white box that came out, uh, which was completely open, came from Facebook. But Facebook, what we did is we said, okay, we have three goals in what we're doing. One is to be able to do a fully disaggregated solution, which means hardware and software independent. There's no relationship between them. The second thing we thought about, okay, we are running hundreds of thousands, in some cases, millions of servers, and we know very well how to provision them, manage them, identify them. And we have a completely separate, different management system for networking. Why? Why can't we manage those switches just like servers? So we built the yes. servers, you know. So we said, okay, if we can do that, then it will actually enable us to merge those two management systems and provisioning systems. So what's interesting is you didn't start by saying cost, which is what everyone expects when they talk about white box, right? They all, everyone expects it's about buying a cheaper box because that's what I care about. And the so you is a side cost. yeah, is a side effect. That's interesting. Now, would you say it was in parallel with the SDN movement or was that, did that play into it? Or was that like completely orthogonal? It wasn't even in any place in the, it was a bit behind the SDN. The SDN was, was running for a while when we started building white boxes, uh, but it was, it was trying to capture much more than the essence of what white boxes were able to actually do. And, and white boxes uh, are working hand in hand with the SDN world because it's the moment you separate the hardware from the software, you're starting to do very creative things on your software stack 
your management system, your provisioning system, and that enables you to do things which are more SDN par excellence, right? If we look at SDN, what is SDN in general? SDN has a lot of interpretations of what it is, but it's it's an environment where you can actually have the software managing your forwarding engine. And uh, you can have software which is open source, you can have commercial packages which are doing that, but that was actually enabled you to run even on standard OEM-based boxes. It did not require the box to be completely open and, and what we define as white. As a, the, the need for the white box actually came from the combination of separation of hardware and software altogether, cost savings, which is there, right? But there's a side effect to the separation of, of what you need and actually tailoring the solution to what you need because for a very long time, the solutions which were in the market were solutions which were targeting a very wide audience that come from the OEMs. The OEMs could not tailor the solution to every one of their customers. So you had to live with what you get. And in the white box environment, when you actually control your destiny, you can actually build what you need. And uh, so, yeah, so it's that, interesting because feature velocity is a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when I worked for a big vendor and maybe someday I'll work for a big vendor again, who knows, right? So you don't want to bad mouth the big vendors necessarily. But um, I know that big vendors throw a lot of features in very quickly, but they have millions of customers. So those thousands of features going in are being split among millions of customers. So it doesn't feel like very much feature velocity for any particular customer. And at the same time, those things interact. I mean, I remember the first time, not the first time I pushed code into iOS Classic, but one of the times I pushed code into iOS Classic, I got paged at one o'clock in the morning because some change I'd made in EIGRP ERP supposedly, or well, the image um, that I had put out as a test image had crashed in X25 had nothing to do with the edge ERP code. And it was just like, <laughs> how does that even happen? You know, it's so weird, but that's the way it actually is, you know? And so the vendors are trying to push thousands of features and there's millions of lines of code out there in these operating systems. Absolutely. Feature, feature velocity was, again, one of the goals that we had. And just as an example, when we were building the first white boxes, when we needed a feature, it meant going three tables away from you to the guy who's running the latest software for you, if it's FBOSS or Sonic or any other thing, and say, I need this. And two days later, it's there. And it's having discussions with the network engineering teams and say, okay, what would you make, what would you need to actually make things easier? I say, I need this feature. And that feature is written in three days or four days or a week or two weeks, then regressed and tested and pushed into production. That is an experience that you could not get at that time with any OEM gear. A request yeah. for a, a request for a feature took between 30 days and three years and sometimes and sometimes infinite time because the OEM doesn't feel it's important enough for them to actually do that. So the feature never came into the mainstream of the network operating system. So over there, the, the gain is enormous from perspective of optimizing the network to what you need and creating stability with the software. Because most data centers use between 10 and 15 features of the full stack of a typical iOS or NXOS or EOS. But in reality, when they're buying the OEM software, they get those hundreds of features and they can create all the collateral damage when every time somebody's pushing some kind of software fix into any uh, image that you don't really care about and a feature that you don't really use but it's still breaking your main line. So that's one yeah. side effect that we had immediately by doing that. 
Well, and the other thing I think is too, this is kind of like, um, you know, weapons of war. If it's ever invented, it'll be used. And quite mm-hmm. often we find in networks that if a nerd knob is added, somebody's going to find a good, a good reason to use it. And frankly, in a large scale environment, that's the last thing you want is you don't want everybody using nerd knobs all over the place. Um, you know, you've really got to think that through. And so actually removing the features is a useful side effect of managing the network. Yeah. Absolutely. So going back to the first experience, Ross, is like, okay, so people look to this and say, okay, the large OEMs carrying teams of between 10 and 100 people, which is designing those switching engines and hundreds of people writing software. How is this going to work? How is this going to scale for the large operators, they don't have hundreds of people to actually build the hardware. They don't have tens of people to build the hardware and they have a handful of people to actually write the software. How's this going to work? What, what's, what's the magic that will happen? And the one uh, other phenomena that started happening at that time, a lot of our manufacturing partners said, hey, why are we just staying with manufacturing? We can actually support you on engineering testing, qualification, running thermal tests, running mechanical tests, building for you things sometimes, use us as as a partner instead of just a manufacturing partner, use us as a design and test partner. So the the evolution of the ODMs as an entity who's capable to take a project from A to Z started at that point where the white boxes were starting to evolve. Initially, the ODMs used to take the reference system that the silicon supplier would give you and just copy it and just try and sell it to you. And then all the white boxes from those ODMs were identical. At that point, some of them started to say, okay, I need to differentiate over here. Some of them were starting to get guidance from their partners in the, on the operator side and say, build something which is more adequate to what I need, more cost optimized, more form factor optimized, and actually build something special. So it's a combination of very small engineering teams at the operators, between one and four in most cases. They tell you to the first white boxes that we built at Facebook. It was a one person show at Facebook with a lot of support people on the ODM side, but it was just one person who was driving the whole thing. And Which, from our perspective, and then we combined it with a relatively small number of software people. And you say, okay, how are those software people line up compared to the hundreds of people at, at the OEMs? And the answer for that is because of the very, very reduced level of number of uh, features that you need, you do not need hundreds of people. You do not need tens of people to run testing and regression because testing and regression in an environment of an operator can actually be done in production. We used to push software on white boxes every week to production, which if you take it five years back, no, unheard of, right? pushing the new version of the software every week to production. It's once a quarter, once every six months, once a year, maybe a weekly push into production, just unacceptable. So, so you ask and say, okay, how's this possible, right? How can you actually push software every week and still maintain stability? The way to do it is that those operators, especially in the cloud side, either the cloud operators or the large application like Facebook or Google, et cetera, they're building their systems under the assumption that the system always can fail. So you don't have to create a nine nines to, to, for stability because if, it, if a rack goes down, nothing happens in the overall servicing of the app. 
So that will give you an opportunity to actually test in production without having to be worried about, okay, what am I going to do? And if, if, if I want to crash the, the switch, this thing's going to fall apart. So when we started, we said, okay, let's take the easiest path, right? Let's build the top of rack. Top of rack is easy. The single chip connecting to, to, to ports on the front and have a CPU subsystem behind it and a power supply and that's it. In reality, it's that simple. If you look at this, right? Okay, you say, okay, if it's that simple, why everybody's not building it? That's because we were preached for many years that you can't. You can't build hardware and software and make it work as a switch in your data center. And we proved that we can. Yes, we can. <laughs> and, and when we proved that we can, and we took and built it, and we took a solution which was based on an innovative solution that we wanted to create to actually be able to address both the world of the top of racks, which is the high volume environment, but relatively low bandwidth in the top of racks, but also address with the same technology, the chassis solutions, which is something that we actually drove into a solution called six pack. And so if you look at this, right, we started with wedge and then extended it to a chassis based solution, which is six pack. So, so back up and describe, well, mm -hmm. two things. First of all, back up, uh, did open source play into this? I'm going to take your question, Donald. So did open source play into this as well? I told Donald to ask this, but it's Open okay. source of the hardware itself? Definitely. Yes. It was important yeah. for us. So, so people ask, okay, why, why did you actually contribute it? Who cares, right? Why did you make this an open source white box that anybody can build, anybody can buy, anybody can replicate? And the answer for that is very simple. This, is, this was never core value to any of the companies who built white boxes. For them, this was just a mean to be successful in their own data centers. There is no reason not to share it because there's no commercial business behind the hardware itself. So, so we said, okay, there's no commercial thing, let's put it out there, everybody can use it and we get adoption and by that we'll increase the footprint of the technology. Right, and build a community, which then leads to things like FR routing and exactly. the ability to have large projects in the open source and get and everything that help everybody. So one of the answers to the question of, well, if you only have two people at Google or Facebook or LinkedIn or wherever working on the Microsoft, working on the software, how do you, how do you match feature-wise? Because you actually don't. You have two people working at every one of those providers and you have two people or three people working at Cumulus and two or three people working at Volta and two or three people working at wherever else. And by between all of them, you actually have a pretty reasonable size coding team and CI, you know, continuous integration, continuous development team. So it's a different, it's different, it's a different model than what people think of. Absolutely it is. And, and, and the white box enabled you to actually create that model because before that, you, you were just locked and blocked by the OEMs. It, the OEMs had a very, very important, and still have a very, very important part of the community of networking and gear. But the, the, in reality, what they said is that either you use my software or you don't use my hardware. And since there's no other available hardware for you to use, you're closed with me. And that's it. And, and the, the enablement of white boxes into this environment basically came and said, no, you're not. I'll be more, very happy to run EOS or NXOS on a white box if you guys want. But I want to also have the option to write it myself. And I can write a Sonic, which is a completely community development. I can write FBOSS, which was developed initially by Facebook, but then opened up for the community. 
I can run any other solution which is going to be available to create innovation. There are thousands of people out there that can actually write really, really good code. And they're all isolated into their companies. The moment you open the door for them, they will come and contribute into an open source environment. And I think what Cumulus did, by the way, is admirable because they created an open source environment, but then they said, okay, a company cannot really survive on open source. We need to have a commercial product as well. So you can always complement an open source project with a commercial project. It doesn't have to be all open source. Bottom line, it's a business. Everybody needs to be to make living in the business. So you do a combination of white box, open source, and commercial packages, and by that you create a solution which is much stronger than any other solution that will be closed. So back up and describe Wedge, because I think that's the top of rack you first talked about. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people listening to this probably don't even know like what Wedge is or what the context is or chipsets and like how was that designed and, and what, what went on in that process. Okay, so Wedge, Wedge was the first box that we decided to build, which was created for actually make the transformation of, of uh, Facebook into an environment where we have white box. Uh, which started in initially and said, okay, what is our speed on the network? It was back then the uplinks were 100, uh, were 10 gig to the server, 40 gig for the uplinks. Okay, so which, which uh, engine is actually supporting that? Clearly Broadcom at that point was the only uh, viable solution in the market to say, okay, that solution can come with that. Uh, with, that solution needs to be adopted. The next step for us for Wedge is actually we look at it and say, okay, is Wedge the end of the line for us? And should we optimize for that? And we clearly immediately saw that Wedge will have a second generation of Wedge 100. And we clearly saw that we want to use the same building block that we did in Wedge for a chassis-based solution. So we built built Wedge in a very interesting way. We took a blade from what we will have in our chassis and we dropped it into a standalone 1RU box. And as a result, the, the wedge has only 16 ports on it. And people said, okay, why did you put just 16 ports over here? I said, because this is all we need in the rack. And that's the beauty of a white box, right? We built what we need. So we needed only 16 ports of 40 gig on the, on the initial generation of that. And we said, okay, if we need only 16, we'll build only 16. Why pay for the extra 16? So we optimized for 16 and we optimized for a single PCB that will go both for the chassis-based solution as well as for the standalone uh-huh. one-RU top of rack. So, so basically at that time, the, the, the Broadcom chipset you were using, which was what? Was a, must it, was have been, Trident. Uh-huh. it was a Trident family. Okay, a Trident family. Yeah. Um, could only support 16 40-gig ports on a single no. chip, right? No, it could support 32. Okay, but, but you only, but you only built... To go to a chassis, we had to face with 16 in the front, 16 in the back to be non-blocking. Right. right. So okay. now if we look at our data centers and the way we were building our data centers with the number of ports that we had, we didn't need more than 16 ports. We had four uplinks and the rest of them were downlinks at 10 gig. 10 gig is a one to four ratio, more than enough to actually support the full rack. So from our perspective, why pay for the extra 16 if we don't need them? Yeah, why develop more than one PCB yeah. if we don't need it? Yeah. yeah. So if you look in details inside the wedge, you will see that on the back of the switch of the wedge, there's like an empty connector over there, which is not staffed on the wedge. That connector is actually where it actually was placed when we went to the chassis. Now we did a couple more interesting things in in, uh, wedge, in the development of wedge. One thing, we decided to make this solution look like a server. 
So we looked at this and I said, what does it mean to look like a server? Because each and every one of the switches has a CPU in it anyways. Most of them are running Linux-based environment. So what, 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 what makes it different looks like a server? And the one thing which actually made it different is the BMC, because all the servers in the world have a BMC on it, which is a CPU core processor, which helps you manage the low-level aspect of the platform. And none of the switches in the world had BMC. So a lot of the tools like IPMI, which we use in the management system, could not manage the switches properly because there was no BMC to talk to. So you had to actually- So this is like a bias? This is like a bias, is that right? It's a bias. Reloader or- ARM-based CPU, which required in every server in the world has a BMC in it. Every server, every server in the world has a BMC in it. And the BMC is doing a lot of functions which are hidden from the end users but for the switch to look like a server, we had to drop one of these in there. And when okay. we drop it in, we say, okay, what kind of software are we gonna run on this? There's like every BIOS, for example, that we get from AMI, there's a software that needs to run on BMC. AMI used to run software, write software for BMC as well. But at that point we said, okay, do we need the full stack of AMI? And can we get AMI to actually operate with the freedom that we're looking for from a feature set? The answer was no. So what we did is we took our top three software engineers from the FBOS team, and in one day of hackathon, we actually wrote the first OpenBMC code, which is currently a very, very cool software package, which is in the industry called OpenBMC, which is driven by a lot of other suppliers. But that OpenBMC started as a necessity. We couldn't get the commercial version of the BMC to be available for us fast enough, so we just took it and, and hacked it in a hackathon. And after 24 hours, OpenBMC was fully up and running on the Wedge platform. It was actually supporting IPv6 and SSL that was not on the original BMC. And it took <laughs> us another three weeks to clean it up and get to the point that we actually can push it in to production, which was unbelievable to us because it was not that complicated. It's a very low level stuff. So a lot of drivers and a lot of a lot of understanding of hardware and software, but the combination was there. One hardware person, three software people, we built it in 24 hours. Which That's is really cool. cool. Yeah, that is really cool. So now the wedge was built, right? With the extra connector on the back and it's basically yeah. just a blade out of another box. Exactly. With the connector on the back thrown into a one RU piece of sheet metal. So you yeah. just went to an OEM, mm-hmm. not an OEM, I'm sorry. Went to an ODM. And and it was Acton and say, hey, this is our concept. This is our design, actually. We gave them schematics and layout and everything. Can you test it for us and build it for us? And they said, yes. So they took it and tested it and built it for us and we pushed it to production after about six months. So from the moment we decided we're building it, the moment we actually powered on the first system, it was 12 weeks. Wow, that's really fast. Any so, numbers so that you look around you, it's like, okay, that is probably five times faster than any other design. Probably in every other OEM, for 12 weeks, you're still negotiating with the VPs if this is a good project or a bad project. Yep. We powered exactly. on in 12 weeks. Yeah, that's wild. So now from there, you built Six Pack, right? Which was, the, yes. which was essentially Wedge 100, as you called it. No, it's not. So six pack, the original six pack was actually building a chassis in a different way that chassis are being built until that time. Chassis until that time had front end ports 
and had back backports which were not exposed to the end users. So basically, either they were cell-based solutions or they were actually specialty uh, silicon uh, interfaces, but they were not. You, you could not have any visibility to it. Now, when we looked at it from a software perspective, we said, okay, we don't want that. We're going back to our concept of disaggregation, which means every blade in that chassis is a switch. And in the chassis, I can build any topology we want. So we took eight of those wedge 40 blades and we created from them front-end interface for 16 times eight, 128 ports of 40 gig. And we took the second half of every one of our chips and we created the clause in a box. So we connected the box inside with four fabric cards, which were double the capacity, to actually create a clause. Now that clause is a two-stage forwarding. You forward on the what's called the line card, which is the, the customer-facing port, but you also forward on the fabric. So when you're going to the fabric, you have the ability to make forwarding decisions. You have the ability to do distribution of traffic. You have the ability to do traffic management. You can, it, looks like, it looks just like a router. In fact, it looks exactly like the router and the blade because it's the same chipset and everything. Absolutely. So, so from our perspective, we had, we had a chassis which was 128 by 40 gigi in six pack, but in reality, it was six switches on the front end and another, sorry, eight, eight switches on the front end plus another four switches in the back, which is doing the fabric for us doing two-stage close forwarding. And the term close in a box actually came out of that box for the reason so, so, that we wanted to keep each and every one of them independent. Now, we did something yeah, very special over there as well compared to standard chassis. If you look at standard chassis, one of the biggest bottlenecks, especially for software developers, is the route processor or supervisor or whatever you call it, each and every one of the OEMs called it something else. We said, you know what? Our CPU subsystem is so cost-effective. We're going to put a CPU subsystem on every blade. And because it's completely disaggregated, each and every one of them is going to run the control plane by itself. So you have actually, in reality, eight control plane instances for the front end and another four in the back for the fabric, which are running independently. And they can run different software packages. They can run different feature sets on the front and the back. They can run in blade one, a different software than blade two, because it doesn't matter. They're completely disaggregated. And that was a model that worked really well because writing software for chassis is complicated. Taking software, which is written for a standalone unit and just combining it into a platform together is much, much, much simpler and opens a lot of doors for SDN tools, which are actually sitting outside and managing that eight plus four combination. Yeah. So by, by contrast, at the, about this time, I think um, we were looking at the 7500, mm -hmm. which was PCI buses on the blades and then its own custom kind of backplane. Exactly. The Cisco 12000, which was a crossbar fabric running its own custom silicon. Mm -hmm. And the 5000, which was essentially just a big flat Ethernet yep. um, backplane. And the 7K, and so, the 7K yeah. from Cisco as well, was a similar architecture. Yeah. Close architecture, so you can see what's inside. Yeah, exactly. So you had all this QoS on the back end ports you couldn't mess with. There was no forwarding decision. Like on the 5K, a line card would put a packet out there, and every line card in the box would pick it up mm -hmm. and decide based on the MAC header who should pick it up to transmit it yeah. out a particular interface. So it was actually double switched inbound mm -hmm. and outbound. Um, so this is a completely different model. 
Um, yep. So, okay. So that's, that's really cool. So that is six pack. Yeah. And that's because it's, why is it so six pack? Why do we call it six pack? <laughs> yeah. Cause because there's eight more. To stay within six RU. Oh, okay. I that's see. the restriction from our network engineering. You have to stay in six RU and you have to be front access only. So we did the blades, which are half width. So those were the actually the blades which are actually building the 16 ports of the wedge. I see, yeah. So we have eight of them. So that, that, that takes four RU plus the two fabrics which are double wide. So we actually put two more RU, six RU, convert it into a cool name, six pack. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. So, so from there, so you deployed that, right? So that was deployed. Yeah. That, that was deploying production at that time. And then from there, we said, okay, what is the next step for us? The next step for us was a, a capacity growth, which led us to actually drive into a 100 gig environment. 100 gig environments required from us actually a much higher capacity because we increased dramatically the bandwidth we gave to the server, as well as increased dramatically the bandwidth that we actually did on the uplinks. So for that, we built, we built the Wedge 100. The Wedge 100 was a, a version based on Tomahawk. And this time we exposed all 32 ports to the front because we needed more than 16. So we gave up on that compatibility between the top of rack and the chassis. And then the six packs was converted into a backpack. In the backpack, a similar configuration to what we had before of disaggregation, cloth-based solution, the disaggregation and backpack went one step more. It actually split the CPU from the forwarding engine altogether. So there are two blades, a CPU blade and a forwarding engine. And it actually broke the need to actually be for front access only. So it required to go to back access as well. But it created 128 by 100 gig in a very, very similar concept of disaggregation saying every element is independent and every element is switching. So you so don't have to worry about back plan uh, dedicated channels. So you actually had a processor card that slid in separately from the, the switching card, card yeah. the forwarding the card. Based card, but they were always in a pair. Like you would never have, yeah, always in a pair, pair. one yeah. processor. Okay. Yeah. And so nowadays you could just put an i7 in there and virtualize it and it never mind. Exactly. <laughs> you can put whatever CPU you want and you can upgrade the CPU separate from the forwarding engine. That's really cool. You don't have to, to upgrade them together. In the six pack and wedge, you could do that as well because the CPU was a plug-in module, but it was not really plug-in from the outside. Well, actually in an assembly, you had to actually make a decision which CPU subsystem you're using there. So that's so, okay. the option of, of, of 40 and 100 gig top of racks and chassis from a white box perspective. Then we started okay. extracting, extracting more things out of that. We looked at that and we said, okay, what should we do for edge and backbone. We don't have a solution for edge and backbone. But what's special about edge and backbone? The special thing in it is actually the optics. The optics is special. It's actually need to drive really long distances, which most standard pluggables are not doing it. So we took the engine, the same switching engine that we had for Wedge and Wedge 100, and split it, half of it user facing, half of it line facing, and created a hybrid switch, which is on one side, the standard switch that we know. On the other side is a line switch and created a solution that's currently being called by Facebook Voyager. And it's the core of the first build of TIP. Oh, wow, that's really cool. What kind okay. of uh, distances do you give a Voyager? 
So Voyager, you can actually put any kind of optical that you want from a coherent perspective. So you can drive hundreds of kilometers or thousands of kilometers. It, it takes a standard coherent uh, transceiver in it. But the beauty of it is that we said we don't need a special router for this. We don't need a special engine for this. We can use the same switching engine we were using before. We just put a different front end. And that front end became available to us. Luckily, we could buy chips off the market, of the open market. We didn't have to design special chips for that and enabled coherent solution to drive tens, hundreds, and thousands of kilometers off a top of rack switch compared to any solution out there, which was much, much bigger, much, much more expensive than what this solution was actually giving you. So would you mind going a little bit into Open 19? Because I know that's your current project. So what's the history behind that? Like, okay, why... So Move into Open 19. So Open 19, when we did Open, when we started Open 19, we said, okay, how can we solve the problem for data centers, which are not necessarily super duper mega data centers, millions of servers all replicated the same way in the same chassis, the same environment, the same building, the same cooling, the same power. How can we actually enable the same technology, which was awesome for the large operators, for people which are mid-sized, for people which are in the edge, people which do not control their building or do not control the power? And we went and built a solution which was very, very creative from perspective of creating a new standard for servers. So we went, okay, what kind of servers we can create a standard for them and should we actually define the servers? So we went and polled the whole market and said, okay, what is common in all those data centers? The only thing we found which was common in all the data centers was 19-inch rack. That's the only thing which is common. Some of them have floating floors, some of them are concrete, some of them the power coming from the ceiling, some of them the power is coming from the floor, some of them the air is coming from the ceiling, some of them the air is coming from the floor. All different, that's the only element which was common is the 19-inch rack, hence the name Open 19. <laughs> now we said, okay, what do we do in it? If we use an open 19-inch uh, rack, how do you actually make a standard server? That is a problem because either we put one or U boxes, which is okay, right? We can do that. But then we're not optimizing the operational side of it because it's just a stack of, of uh, one or U boxes. Well, and further than that, you have separate power for everyone. You have to have separate cooling because everyone's wrapped in cheap metal. There's no airflow. Exactly. All that other stuff goes so in. we said, okay, let's build a solution which is completely disaggregated. The same model that we did on the on the networking side of white boxes. Every element is independent. Every element is self-cooling. Every element is actually self-powered. And you look at this and you say, okay, what, what what are the issues that we have in data centers when we bring them up online? One of the biggest issues that all of the data center operators have is cabling. The cables take a very long time to actually put in place, and that's the place where most of the mistakes are happening. People just don't cable it right. So we said, okay, let's solve the problem. Let's eliminate the cabling from the system. And we'll build a cabling system which enables 100 gig per every half U server, day one, without a hand touch by a tech. So the tech doesn't need to cable it. It's always pre-cabled. And we optimize in the process the cost by cutting about 40 to 50% out of that. And then we said, okay, so let's do the servers now. So we defined the form factor for the servers, half width, full width, uh, and, and two U uh, solution. And we said, okay, should we build the servers? We went out to all the server suppliers and said, hey, we're building a new standard for servers, which is very, very optimized. It enables you to actually use the motherboards that you have and drop them to that new form factor. 
enables you to actually get rid of the power supplies in every server because we're going to do centralized, extremely optimized power distribution in the system and enable us to actually create an environment where we actually can deploy really, really fast those systems because there's no cabling system, there's, the, the racking is much faster. So we went to that and said, okay, can you guys build for our servers? And we got now nine suppliers of servers which are building servers to that form factor. <laughs> Wow, that's really cool. incredible to us because we did not design a single server. At that point, we decided at LinkedIn to design our server because we needed something special. But that 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 the beauty of white box and an open environment, anybody can design to that open environment. You don't have to be specialty one. You don't have to have a lockdown chassis that only my servers will fit into their chassis. This chassis is completely open. Anybody can do that. Now, if you look at the optimization we're able to achieve, it's enormous. We did measurements on timing of how long it takes us to build a pod. A pod is 1,500 servers, more or less. Traditionally, it took us, and it took everybody almost in the industry, even if we do rack and rolling, about 20 to 30 days to actually build such a pod, bring it online, enable it, and, and deliver it into production. With Open19, we proved that we can build it in one day. <laughs> so in one day, we can build a pod of 1,500 servers because we optimize the way with the way we build it. And then we looked at it a step further and say, okay, inserting servers into Open19 means just pushing it in and locking the lock in place. No cabling, right? So it's a process which is that simple. We don't really need a person to do it. It can be completely automated with a robotic hand that will do that in the future. <laughs> So we're working on future development of Open19 where robotic hands can actually do that. Now let's take it to the edge and say, okay, what's happening in the edge? So in the edge, we have so many environments which are completely diversified. You don't know where you're going to land. You might land in a container in the desert somewhere, or you might land in, in a bunker under the cell tower in, in Alaska. You have no idea what it is, right? So we said, okay, in most of those places, we don't have trained people to actually install servers or install uh, technology at all. So our goal was the UPS person should be able to actually plug in your server. So you just ship it with the UPS guy. He comes to the site. There will be a slot, and he will push the, the server into the slot. The, the mechanical hand will put it where it's supposed to be in the right location in the rack. <laughs> That's the goal we had, and we achieved it. It is possible to do it that way. You need zero training to actually build the rack. And we're going to do a video on that, right? We'll get a bunch of kids, actually. Let them actually build a rack and see how it works. <laughs> so that's really, really cool. So going back to the beginning, um, what kind of challenge did you face doing this? Building the community, convincing people this was a good idea? I mean, like, what do people, what do people see out of this that's, you know, been difficult or, or whatever? I think that the biggest challenge that we had, and that's common to everybody who try to do an open source uh, white boxing and networking, is the lack of, of belief by people's hearts that it is possible to do it outside of the OEM side. For almost two decades, OEMs were the only ones who delivered it to us. And every one of those OEMs is a multi-billion company which has huge investment of billions of dollars in development and say, okay, how is it possible that somebody can actually build something which is comparable? Two evolutions happened and, and actually enabled us to be convincing people. One is, is the open 
switching engines. You don't need to actually have a special ASIC team anymore to create a switch. You go to Broadcom or you go to Innovium or you go to Barefoot and you say, okay, give me a switch. And they will sell you for the right price the switching engine. So it becomes a software effort and it's not a hardware effort. The integration of the system level is not that complicated. It is possible to do it. So people were holding for a while to see, let's see this thing actually running in production before we'll be actually on board. And let's see what the support model is. And I think the support model is probably the place where people had the most concern. Is like, if something breaks, who do I call on a white box environment? There's no, there's no direct support, Cisco support coming, jumping right away, do that, do that, do that. But very quickly, people learned is that if you manage your software, then your support is actually natural. It's, it, you don't need a support engine for that. And if you, want, buy, if you don't want to do this, you buy a commercial package that runs on a white box. You don't have to actually own the software because there's enough commercial packages out there that will give you the support you used to, like you used to have at Cisco. But you don't have to, play an ar- to pay an arm and a leg for, to get that support. You don't have to pay a huge amount of money for the hardware that is relatively straightforward to build. So I would say the biggest challenge was, is this going to be as stable and as robust as what I had before on the OEM? And I think right now that we have about five years of running with white boxes, it has been proven that yes, it is. It has been deployed in very large volumes and a reliable environment. What would you say to um, network engineers today, what they need to learn to be ready for this new paradigm? I think they need to learn to code. They need to actually <laughs> be able to write, uh, in my opinion, they need to be able to write their features themselves. The, the software environments give them an opportunity to actually do that. <laughs> And most of them, by the way, the good ones know how to code. And it's just a matter of them either being able to specify very clearly to their software engineers, yeah, I want that feature and give it to me next week, or actually go and code it themselves. And there's plenty of examples uh, uh, on the FBOS side where the network engineers set and write the code and actually created the features that they needed and play with it and tuned it and, and optimized it and brought it to the perfect state that they wanted it to be without having a need for a very large team and uh, ticketing system and, uh, and requests and begging and all kinds of other things. You don't need to do that anymore. So uh, what would you do differently now? What was your biggest mistake and you would change? Uh, I would say we probably ran a little bit too fast at the beginning. We were very anxious and very uh, excited to actually create these new uh, solutions we should have slowed it down a little bit to let people get adjusted to it because at first people were in shock when we gave them the solution <laughs> and we should have done it a little bit slower to let people adopt the fact that, Oh yeah, I need to control my own destiny. Now I need to actually be able to control the software properly. I need to develop mechanisms to actually push software to production, et cetera. So I think that's the thing that I would, I would do different. Uh, I would also Go to an environment where, where the solution uh, is much easier to be opened. Uh, even the white boxes that we built initially, it was not that straightforward to open them up. And we learned in the cycle that to be able to, to open up hardware, you need to own the full package, which means that you need to be able to put out into open source environment a package that somebody that knows how to actually manufacture can take it and manufacture it. 
that creates a very, very quick turnaround and enabling multiple ODMs to be able to create a solution which is comparable to the others. It was a challenge in all the white boxes development, even in the server development uh, that were given out, the packages which are out there were not good enough to be able to be reproducible. So that's something that we learned during the time. And now when we are putting out packages, that package is completely reproducible, which means that if I, need, if I am another supplier and I wanna take it and build out of this a product, I can. And I can put my fingerprint on it and make sure that it actually has my qualities and my uh, control and my testing capabilities. But I don't need to sit down and develop from scratch and I'm still gonna be compatible with the other product which comes from another uh, supplier and at the same time compete properly on this market. So that's really cool. So we're at 44 minutes. Do you have anything, other bits of history you want to share, Yuval, before we sign off? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I think uh, just to quote some quotes out of Facebook, one of the quotes that is all over the world over there is, what would you do if you're not afraid? By building a white box is exactly what would you do if you're not afraid. Just go build it, see what happens. And we were able to be successful with that because we, we were not afraid that something will break. We were not afraid that something will not work. We were not afraid that we don't have 200 people of software and hardware. We just went and did it. And we proved that that's something that can actually work really well. Yeah, so you would say, you know, it's not, it's not as, it's not as that it's not hard. It's just not as hard as it's made out to be. Yeah. Like, you, you know, you think of this huge feature list and then you think, how many of those do I really use, honestly? What do I really do? And if I'm using all of them, why am I using all of them? Seriously, do I really need to configure every nerd knob that has ever been invented by every vendor? <laughs> it's like, you don't. Do I do that? Yeah. you don't. You need to build for yourself, right? And if you, if you can build for yourself and, and, yours, and you will be surprised how much yourself is similar to the guy next to you because they yeah. need the same self, most of them. Yeah. So then there's commonality and that's how community is being created and that's how collaboration models will be created. That's how people can actually build large projects without being large companies. That's really cool. Yeah, it's all through the community. So Yuval, do you blog other than, I think you blog on the LinkedIn engineering blog every now and then, right? Yeah, I, I blog on the LinkedIn engineering from time to time and I blog also on my personal LinkedIn stuff whenever I have some. Uh, is that just on LinkedIn or do you have another site? No, I don't have a generic site. I probably should have one. Yeah, you probably should. That would be really cool. And um, you're on Twitter, I assume. Yes. Yes. So my and handle is Yuval Bahar 99 Okay. And you're on LinkedIn, I assume. <laughs> so people can find you there. Oh, absolutely. So Donald, uh, you don't blog still. For all of my trying, I say this every show, and he still doesn't blog. And But you are on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? Me not you sharp. Me not you sharp. And you can always find Donald as well. Someplace in GitHub repositories working on something in FR routing. Um, this week it's Zebra. It is. <laughs> and a little next, BGP. And yes, and a little BGP. And um, I heard that Donald's rewriting all of BGP next week. That's what that's the um, rumor. It might take me a few. It's about time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so, and of course, you can always find me at rule11.tech and always find me at the Network Collective and on LinkedIn. Twitter, Routing Geek is my handle on Twitter, although I don't still don't log in a ton, but, you know, I do log in every now and again. So thanks for listening to the Network Collective History of Networking. We hope you enjoyed this and come back to the Network Collective for more running around looking for the skeletons in those wiring closets. Thanks. Thanks.